So have you ever been invited to a really nice dinner party? You know, the kind that, that has cloth napkins and you know, a little place card with your name on it. I recently attended a luncheon in honor of a friend of mine, and it was in a, a really nice uh, private room in a downtown location, and the food was great, and the service was great, and the coconut cake was fantastic, and there was even a little, little card, a little place card with my name on it on the table. I also randomly discovered at that luncheon that day some very helpful information for me at least, and that is that there is such a thing in this world as a 30-pound container of Duke's mayonnaise. I had no idea this existed. It's incredibly exciting to me. Maybe that's just me, though. It was a really, really nice location. It was a really, really nice place with really nice food and really nice service. But that's not what made this luncheon so fantastic. What made the luncheon fantastic was the people. Pleasant people. Delightful people. Intriguing people. Fun people. There was lots of laughter. There was lots of joy. Why? Well, because we were there to honor our friend. We were there because of this one person that we all loved. This one person that we appreciate greatly. So it wasn't hard for us to enjoy each other's company. It wasn't hard for us to have a nice time together because we were loving and honoring this one. Maybe you're not a cloth napkin kind of person, though. Maybe you're more a corner booth in an old diner kind of person. Maybe you're a picnic table at a campground kind of person. Maybe you're a TV dinner on a TV tray in front of the TV kind of person. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you buy astronaut food. You know, maybe that's your thing, and, and you order all your astronaut food online, and you eat your astronaut food on a bench at your van down by the river. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what your food choice is. But regardless of what your food choice is, regardless of your eating habits or your eating preferences or your eating styles, there is a very important place card in your life. And not just in your life. There's a very important place card in the lives of of the people you know, your family, your friends, your neighbors, the people you work with, the people you go to school with. And not just in the lives of the people that you know, but in the lives of people that you don't know, in strangers that you might pass every now and then on the way. The interesting twist, though, is this. All of those place cards, the ones for you and the ones for your family and even ones for some strangers, those place cards are, in a sense, connected to you. In a sense, you have an opportunity every day to be a host with the most, or a hostess with the mostess. Or you have an opportunity, on the other side, to be a rude dude or a rude dudette. In other words, every day you have an opportunity with your life to influence and impact the place card of another person. So what is this place card? And what does it have to do with you? Well, we're going to rewind a few years back to the very first church and see if they can't help us find an answer to this notion of this place card of life. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 46, the second part. Day by day, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Last week, we looked at this picture that day by day, they were going to the temple together. 
Today we see that day by day, the first church, they had dinner parties. And when did they have them? Well, they had them day by day. Now, if you're addicted to Pinterest, then you might just really have gotten nervous in that moment because you're thinking in your mind, wait a minute, day by day? You mean I have to clean my house every day? You mean I have to plan a gourmet meal for more than two people every day? You mean I have to pull out my glue gun and, and make creative theme napkin holders every single day? You mean I have to pull out extra charger plates every single day? Or if you're a guy and you're not very Pinteresting, then maybe you would think more along these lines. Well, you mean every day I've got to keep the yard trimmed? You mean every day I have to DVR my favorite TV shows? You mean every day I have to be on time for dinner every day? You mean every day I have to actually wash up and clean up for dinner? Well, none of those things are the picture of what we see here in the first church. In the first church, we have really a, a better picture is more like a, a small potluck meal than really a well-planned five-course meal. It was a little more casual. In other words, like everything else we've seen about the first church, it was simple, it was uncluttered, and it was ordinary. They met together, and they broke bread together. Now, in breaking bread together and meeting together, is it possible that they also were observing the Lord's Supper together? Well, yeah, very possible. You've got to remember in this time, there was no First Baptist Church sanctuary down the street where they could all freely meet and, and have communion with the pastor and the deacons and the silver communion plates. It, it wasn't like that. You see, to be a believer in, in this time, in this moment, was full of rejection and danger and persecution. So yes, they still went to the temple day by day, but they didn't reserve the fellowship hall at the temple to observe the communion. They didn't reserve the fellowship hall so they could observe a supper for a man that the temple leaders actually delivered over for execution. Now they were a little wiser in how they lived out their faith. They met in homes. They ate together. And more than likely, on a regular basis, they observed the Lord's Supper together. So what manner did they break bed together? What, what was it like? Was it like a kind of a, a loud party where the neighbors had to call the cops because, you know, it was just kind of crazy and there was, there was cars all over the street and blocking people's driveways and stuff? No. Remember, this is the first group of people to follow their risen Jesus. There was danger. This, this wasn't them just doing something comfortably for two hours before they went to the buffet on Sunday. They were not hiding their faith but they were wise with their faith. It wasn't a loud Super Bowl party that they would have at people's homes. No, Luke says that they met and they broke bread together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Why were they glad? Well, they were glad because just a few weeks before they started meeting together, this is what their resume sounded like. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Separate, excluded, strangers, without God, absolutely no hope. I mean, that doesn't sound like what you want on your resume or under your senior picture in your high school annual. But what does it mean? Well, it means if you're not a Christian, then you do not have Christ. And if you do not have Christ, then God is not your God. 
Yes, God is still your God in the sense that He beautifully and fearfully and wonderfully created you. But God is not your God in the sense that when you wake up after your very last breath, you will be with Him. You see, everyone has a place card after they die. Just one. And everyone is not seated at the same table. In fact, in a sense, so to speak, there's only two tables after death. One table is a table of honor. The other table is a table of horror. One table seats you as a friend of God, and the other table seats you as an enemy of God. Now, I don't say those things as scare tactics to try to get you to join the church or, or donate money. That is how God talked to Noah and Moses and Esther and David and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. That's how God spoke to people for for a few thousand years. And that's how Jesus talked when he was on this earth. And so we want to speak the things that they have spoken. And so if you have not cried out to God to save you, if you have not repented of your sin and your rebellion against God and, and turned and started following Jesus, if you have not and are not believing in and trusting in and relying on and clinging to Jesus Christ as your only source of ultimate hope for your soul, then according to God's Word, you are separated from God. You are excluded from His table. You are strangers to God, and you are without God and without hope. That doesn't just mean that you don't know enough about religion. What it means is this, is is God is, is not your God, and God is not for you. Now, is that because he's some mean supernatural dictator? No. He's not for you, Because very much on purpose, you are rejecting him. You're either rejecting him out of arrogance, out of apathy, or out of ignorance. Arrogance in the sense that that you're just too intelligent, or too practical, or too scientifically minded maybe, to believe in some mystical story about some Santa Claus who has a really unfair, nice, and naughty list. So in arrogance, you just reject God. Or maybe you reject him in apathy. You're just too busy. You're just too busy with work or with school. You're too busy with your hobbies. You're too busy with sports or fantasy sports. You're too busy trying to just enjoy the good things in life. Or maybe you're too busy being bitter and angry and stressed out about the fact that you can't enjoy the good things in life. Or you're rejecting God out of ignorance. You know some things about religion, a little bit here and there. But you aren't really clear on the fact that that being a hardworking American or being a a member of a, a good charitable organization is not a ticket to God's heaven. So you can keep rejecting God from arrogance and from apathy, but you can't keep rejecting Him from ignorance. You see, Jesus Christ is the only way and the only truth and the only life and the only hope for your soul. There is no other hope. So you cannot reject God from ignorance any longer. Jesus is the hope. So let me ask you a very hard and yet very merciful question. 
if the place card with your name on it were to be set on a table today, which table would it be set on? Maybe God is softening your heart toward the gospel today. Maybe he's softening your heart toward Jesus. Please don't push him away. Please turn and please repent and please find life and hope and love in Jesus. The people of the first church, they they found this hope in the person of Jesus. And so they kept meeting together. They kept gathering together. They were breaking bread together because their resume had changed. Because their high school annual had changed. They were no longer separated. They were no longer excluded. They were no longer strangers. They now had real lasting hope because now God was their God. And he was with them and he was for them. And how in the world did that even happen? This is what Paul goes on to say to the church at Ephesus. You were at that time separate, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Some of these very first churchgoers, they saw the crucifixion. They didn't hear about it from a preacher. They didn't watch it in a movie. They saw with their own eyes Jesus tortured, and they saw Jesus die. And then a few days later, they saw Jesus alive. No hoax, no mystery, no weird thing. They saw the risen Jesus. And when they saw him, they knew that he was not just a fancy preacher with a cool website and multiple book deals. They saw him as the risen son of God. And when they saw him, they also realized something really important. They realized Jesus had substituted himself for them. That the penalty of their sin was was taken on by Jesus. That Jesus satisfied that penalty. So they no longer had to worry or be stressed out about being excluded from certain places in the temple. They no longer had to stay lost in their sin. They no longer had to stay lonely in their depression. Jesus changed everything. He paid for their sin with his own blood. Far became near because of Jesus. And they had hope because of Jesus. And that hope, that hope in the body and the blood and the resurrection of Jesus, it made them glad, exceedingly glad, abundantly glad, and sincerely glad. So what do they do with all their gladness? Well, the language that Luke gives here means this, that this gladness and this sincerity, it has the idea of having one mind and one attitude that leads to one thing. And so what was the one thing they were being led to? Well, the one thing they were being led to was hospitality. So what is hospitality? Well, here in the South, you know, we kind of think of hospitality as, you know, making sure that you you roll the red carpet out, and if somebody stops by unannounced, you know, you got some cookies and some sweet tea and coffee and lemonade, something available to give people. But, you know, hospitality in the New Testament is, is a little different. It has a different ring to it. It comes from two different words. Love and strangers. So the first church would understand that hospitality meant love and strangers. Loving people outside of your normal group. The people that you hang with. 
So the people of the first church would know that hospitality meant more than inviting your closest friends over for a cookout or for a crawfish bowl. They, they knew that there was something more to this. See, they understood that hospitality and entertaining were two completely different things. Jen Wilkin is a wife and a mom and a writer from Texas. I love what she says about entertainment and hospitality. She writes, Entertaining involves setting the perfect tablescape after an exhaustive search on Pinterest. It requires every throw pillow to be in place, every cobweb to be eradicated, every child to be neat and orderly. It plans extra time to don the perfect outfit before the first guest touches the doorbell on the seasonally decorated doorstep. Entertaining focuses attention on self. And then she writes of hospitality. Hospitality chooses a menu that allows FaceTime with guests instead of being chained to the stovetop. It picks up the house to make things pleasant, but doesn't feel the need to conceal evidences of everyday life. Hospitality shows interest in the thoughts and the feelings and the pursuits and the preferences of its guest. It is good at asking questions and listening intently to answers. Hospitality focuses attention on others. And then she gives this list. Entertaining is always thinking about the next course. Hospitality burns the rolls because it was listening to a story. Entertaining obsesses over what went wrong. Hospitality savors what was shared. Entertaining seeks to impress. Hospitality seeks to bless. Entertaining invites those whom it will enjoy. Hospitality takes all comers. See, the early church, they weren't entertaining one another by breaking bread. They were encouraging one another by breaking bread. They were doing all that they could to say, we are so glad in Jesus. How can we share this with one another? Their gladness, their sincerity, their togetherness, their hospitality were all a reflection of their salvation. Listen to these following phrases. Tell me if you've seen them or or heard them or said them in the last few weeks. I just can't believe what's happening in our country. Our nation has lost its moral compass. What's going to happen with our government? What's going to happen with this sinful generation? No show of hands. You've seen that, heard that, thought that in the last few weeks. Well, if so, if if this is the time that we are living in as Christians, if this is, is your season of life, what should you be doing as a Christian in this season of life? Should you be organizing angry protests at all the bars and nightclubs in town? Should you be standing on the street corner and screaming at everybody downtown that they're going to hell? Should you be using your time just to watch the news and complain about everything going on in the world? Or should you be doing something different? What about this one? Have you said or heard or thought this? Man, it just feels like we are living in the end times. Somebody else said that once. Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. He said that 2,000 years ago. He said that during a time when Christians were experiencing a great deal of persecution. He said that during a time when the society and the culture was deeply immoral, self-centered, and evil. Sound familiar? And so what was his advice to them? 
What was his advice to them living in this, this deeply immoral and evil time? Well, this was Peter's advice to the Christians. As the end draws near, be hospitable. Hospitality was what he encouraged them in. David Mathis was born in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He became a follower of Jesus when he was in college at Furman University. He's now a pastor and ministry leader in Minnesota. A few years ago, he was at a meeting, and and the person leading the meeting was a a leading evangelism and church planning strategist. Somebody who's been all over the continent on a regular basis, helping with evangelism and, and church planning training. And in this meeting, this strategist asked the group, do you know what the key for evangelism is in the 21st century? That's a pretty big question, right? I mean, especially we as Baptists, right? We, we talk as Baptists a lot about people getting saved, about the, the lost being reached. So that's evangelism. So the key to evangelism, that, that sounds like a pretty big deal. So, so what was it? Was it a, a young preacher with lots of personality and charisma? Was it a fantastic door-to-door visitation program? Was it a a well-oiled greeter system in the parking lot? Was it a well-oiled invitation system at the end of the service with very moving music? Was it a fantastic new worship center or maybe a new gym? No. That strategist looked out across the room and he said the key to evangelism for these next generations, for these next sinful generations, the key is hospitality. Hospitality. I probably have read eight to ten articles this week by men and women of different denominations, different demographics, and they all say the same thing. The more they look around the world, the more they look in our community and in the communities of the world, the one thing that keeps coming back is hospitality. And you know why? Because that's how the gospel got to you to begin with. That's how the gospel got to me to begin with. That's how the gospel got to South Carolina. You see, the first church, they were glad in their salvation. They were sincere in their salvation. They were working hard to be hospitable to one another. And they were working hard to be hospitable to complete strangers. And what was happening is they were so glad, they were so sincere, they were so full of hospitality because of their salvation in Jesus Christ, people started going, who are those people? Who are they? What what are they doing? What are they like? And what happened was this. Their gladness, their sincerity in Jesus, their hospitality to others, it was winsome. It was attractive. It was appealing. Let me ask you a question. How attractive are you? I'm not talking about your hair. I'm not talking about your shoes. I'm not talking about your well-manicured yard. How attractive is your faith in Jesus Christ? If we were to to look in your home, how how Christ-honoring is hospitality in your home? In your office or in your cubicle, in your place in the factory, is there a sense of Christ-honoring hospitality there? At your tailgate on Saturdays, is there a sense of Christ-honoring hospitality there? In your manners at the restaurant on Sunday after church, is there a sense of Christ-honoring 
hospitality. And your manners behind the wheel in five o'clock traffic. Is there a sense of, of Christ honoring hospitality? Are you a fantastic greeter on Sunday mornings? You will shake a hand and, and say, good to be here. But the hospitality part, you'll leave to the staff because after all, that's what they're paid for. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. And through a little bit of arrogance and a little bit of apathy and a little bit of ignorance, she was without God and without hope in this world. And she didn't know that. She thought she was good and fine. She was important. She had a good reach for her subject matter. And she began to read the Bible really as a way to know what Christians believe so that she could be oppositional toward Christianity. But something happened. She started reading the Bible, and the Bible started getting into her. And she didn't know what to do with it. And then she met a pastor through a a very unique set of circumstances. And he was a biblically sound pastor, and, and he met this pastor's wife. And she saw an experience from this couple, true grace and mercy and hospitality. Eventually, the gospel captured her heart, and her life was turned upside down. And in a lot of fantastic ways, in a lot of really, really hard ways, things changed as she began to follow Jesus. I haven't read it yet, but it is moving up my to-do list now that I'm aware of her. But I believe her first book was called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And I'm looking forward to reading that. The pastor and his wife did not share the gospel with her. The pastor and his wife, they did not even invite her to go to church. This is what she writes. I trusted them because they did not do those things. I knew the script, but Ken and his wife Floyd were not talking to me as if I simply were a blank slate. And then she says this, you know, where they'd say, okay, here's someone who clearly needs the gospel. Let's make sure we get to these points before we let her leave our house. Rather, they seemed more interested in having a long relationship with me. A long relationship. See, it was simple. It was uncluttered. It was ordinary. But it was glad and it was sincere. Their hospitality, along with the truth of God's word, drew her to Christ. Now let me bring it a little more closer to our community. My friend Lee Clamp is currently the evangelism director for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. He recently co-authored a book with some older and younger pastors. It's a book about how across generations we should be working together. The title of his book is called Unite, Connecting Generations for kingdom expansion. In his chapter of the book, he tells a story of talking to someone who is a non-church attender. And this is what that person told him. I've got someone at work with who I work with who is constantly trying to get me to go to their church. They've got a big building, a loud band, and supposedly a good preacher. But the guy hadn't been. So Lee asked him, hey, well, why don't you go? And this is what he said. Because it seems like they care more about me going to their church than they do about me. It seems like they care more 
about me going to their church than they care about me. Listen, let's care first and most for Jesus. And then let's care deeply for the gospel. And let's care deeply for God's word. And let's care deeply about being hospitable to one another. And let's care deeply about being hospitable to complete and total strangers. Why? Why should we be intentional about showing love and hospitality to complete strangers? Here's why. If you're a Christian, then you used to be a stranger. You used to be excluded. You used to be separated. You used to be without God and without hope in the world. And just in case you grew up in church, so did I. So I grew up in church. I was a good kid and I was excluded. I was a stranger. I was separated. I was without God. I was without hope because I was without Christ. I was just a church kid. But here's the thing. The reason we show hospitality to each other and the reason we show hospitality to strangers is because we're not strangers anymore. See, we once were far off. We were excluded. We were separated. But now, through the blood of Christ, we have been brought near. Near to God through Jesus. Let us do everything we can with the strength that God gives us to help others draw near to Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer, and Friend.